0: Everybody, welcome back to the pod. We are continuing um, talking about words that you use, I've used, you hear the church use uh, that mean something different than what I think that we mean. Uh, the Inigo Montoyas, we're calling it, using a Princess Bride reference, which is always a good idea when you can do it. He didn't fall? Inconceivable! You keep using the word i don't think it means what you think it means and i'm um, continuing talking about uh wrath today and want to continue that conversation because i think it's it's obviously a big one uh we had an initial conversation about hell with brad jerzak if you haven't listened to that you should, good, should go do that and um but that idea of hell we said in the last episode is built upon uh, having some a particular uh, concept of wrath, of what, um, what we mean by having an angry God or a wrathful God or a God who brings his wrath upon people. And um, so last time we spent a fair amount of the pod talking about the first time that God actually gets angry and um, acts out in his wrath, which is uh, not until the book of Exodus. And, uh, and today I want to actually try and define God's wrath, or look at, what we're going to do um, is actually look at what I think are the three main metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about God's wrath. This is one of the problems, is um, we think God's wrath is... Uh, A, very easily defined, and I think that's mistake number one. But two, we have just a very simplistic picture of it, and um, we think about it as essentially God um, acting out his anger towards people or a nation in some violent means. That's, I think, what most of us think about when we think about God's wrath is he gets angry, and because he's angry, he does something typically violent towards people. And that's kind of our definition. And the problem with that is, one, it's too simplistic, uh, but two, it doesn't actually do justice to the biblical text. The the biblical text is not um, monotone when it talks about God's wrath. There are a variety of images and metaphors that the the poets and the writers of the scriptures use to try and describe God's wrath, and and they um, they use a couple of them more times than than other ones. And so I want to key into what I, I think are the main three. And so these are, by the way, so uh, just to so I'm clear, these are not the only three, and um, but these I think are the main three that are used. Uh, throughout the scripture, Old and New Testament. And part of the problem with the word wrath and why it is difficult at times is many times when the word is used, um, I'm thinking actually particularly in the New Testament here, it's just used really without definition. Um, And so you have to read very carefully. And if it's given without definition, that means you have to go somewhere else to try and find definition what you can't do which is actually i think that the thing that we do do too often is we then just read our own definition into it um, rather than trying to search around okay where where else in scripture uh, is this word used and how is it used and what connection maybe does this passage or this story have somewhere else that can key me into what I think is being said here. But we, 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 what we can't do is just import it. So uh, I want to look at the three, what I think are the three main um, metaphors for God's wrath in in the Bible. I'm going to start with what I think is actually the, the easiest one. And uh, we're going to start in in Romans um, chapter 1. In Romans one sixteen, we get kind of Paul's thesis statement for the whole book, that it's he's not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God to salvation. And then in verse 17, he says, for in it, in, in this gospel, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed. So there's this, in the gospel, there is this revelation of uh, the righteousness of God. But then you have to just keep reading, uh, because in verse 18, the wrath of God is also revealed from heaven so in the gospel we have this double revealing so anyone who says um, that we're trying to that i'm trying to or other people are trying to get rid of the wrath of god that's not true the wrath of god is inherent in the gospel because the gospel both reveals the righteousness of god and it reveals the wrath of God. The question just is, similar to to what hopefully you picked up on from my conversation with Brad Jerzak Jerzak on hell, it's not about getting rid of God's wrath or getting rid of hell. It's about finding, um, finding, if I can say it this way, better ways to talk about wrath and hell, finding meaning finding the ways that the scripture actually talks about them and they don't talk about them in as simplistic universal terms as we think that they do and so it's just trying to wrestle with the text of scripture that's all we're trying to do um and and in the hell conversation brad took us through a whole bunch of conversation or a whole bunch of images and passages that hell is um or the place of god's punishment is referenced in all kinds of different ways and we have to try and do our best to work those things together we can't just key in on one and that was the whole point of that conversation i'm trying to do the same thing here with wrath so there's not trying to get rid of it but it's this so there's this double revealing there's the righteousness of god that's revealed and there's the wrath of god and then he goes on three times in um, the next handful of verses where he talks about these uh, wicked and unrighteous people so the wrath of God is revealed towards unrighteous people. And unrighteous people are those who by Romans 1 definition who have uh, given them uh, given their worship to created things rather than creation that they've suppressed the truth of who God is and they've worshiped creation uh, rather than the creator and God's answer or response to them is that uh, he gave them over to their own sin, to their own lust, to their own unrighteousness in order to dishonor their bodies. He gave them up to their own, verse 26 says, their own uh, vile passions. Um, and so three times in these verses, God uh, Paul uses this language of God giving people over to their own sin to their own passions and then allowing uh those sins and passions to kind of collapse back in on the person Uh, meaning that they're going to basically reap the the rewards the consequences of their own sin later on in romans paul gives a very clear statement that the wages of sin is death and so we can just Even within the book of Romans, we can see, okay, so these unrighteous people, the gospel is revealing the wrath of God, being that he gives people over to their own sinful desires and allows those things to lead to the inevitable conclusion of death, that the wages of sin is death. So if you are going to reject the way of jesus and reject the 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 work of jesus and he you are going to just be filled up with your own vile passions with your own uncleanness with your own wickedness and unrighteousness until you experience death and so there's this there's this giving over uh, that god does and so the wrath of god in in romans 1 and this is we'll look at a whole bunch of examples here in just one moment is this idea that god just hands you over to what it is that you is in your heart the wickedness that's in your own heart and you reap the the consequences of that and so paul gives this really clear definition this is actually i think one of the most important passages on this subject because it is it is one of the clearest because he just states it and he states it three times in a matter of 10 verses or whatever it is um that it's he gave them over and this is the wrath of God. I mean, he just comes out and says it. In the Old Testament, we see this dynamic working in a whole bunch of ways, some of which are easier to see uh, and some of which are, are more difficult. So I just wrote a couple down um, that are, are interesting and, and I think convey this point. In, um, I mentioned in the last episode that uh, God's wrath is not mentioned at all in the books of Genesis or uh, Leviticus. It is actually mentioned I, I kind of misspoke it is actually mentioned once in Leviticus but it's not related to the sacrificial system so th- that was the conversation in the last episode it's it is mentioned the word is used only one time in uh in the book of Leviticus but it's not uh, r- related to the sacrificial system at all so my point still stands that the sacrificial system has not at least in the book of Levit- Leviticus in in Moses's writing, there it has nothing to do with placating the the wrath of God or the anger of God or satisfying it in any way. That's not the point of of the sacrificial system. Uh, but there is we do get this story in Leviticus ten, where uh, Nadab and Abihu um, they go into the temple and they offer. Um, what's called strange fire. They put incense in the fire that they're not supposed to, to put, and they offer strange fire to the Lord. And then it says fire comes out and consumes them. And so you, the idea here is that they offer strange fire and then are consumed by the very fire that they had just put on there. So they they offer strange fire on the altar, and then fire comes out of the altar and consumes them. And so their own fire that they offered is the fire that is, is consuming them. In uh, the book of Numbers, you get this story, and Jesus ends up referencing this in John three, where the people are complaining, uh, and it says they have complaining tongues, and they're they're complaining against Moses and and against God, and all of a sudden. Uh, poisonous serpents who have poisonous tongues come out and begin to bite them, and people begin to die. And it's this plague of serpents, and this is where Moses has to fashion a, a serpent made out of bronze and lift it up, and anyone who looks upon it uh, is healed and saved. And Jesus says he's that he is the ultimate serpent who's going to take on the form of of the curse of death and he's going to be lifted up on the cross and anyone who looks upon him is going to be healed and saved and uh, but the point there is, is it's people complaining with their tongue with their mouth and then it is a serpent with a poisonous tongue and poisonous mouth that is is biting them it's it's a creative way i think of what the author is saying uh, is that they are being consumed by by their own. It's their own complaining mouths that is coming back uh, upon them. Uh, Numbers 11, uh, we get the story of uh, the people begin to p- complain that they want to go back to Egypt, and they start listing off all the food that they used to eat in Egypt and how they miss it. And now all they have is this manna, this bread that falls in the morning. And what they particularly want is they want meat. And so God says, okay, I'll I'll give you meat. Uh, every day you can go out outside of the camp and there will be a whole ton of meat and there will actually be so much meat. I'm going to fill your belly for a month nonstop with meat until it's coming out of your nostrils. That's literally what he says. Until you are so stuffed with meat that you hate it and it is coming out of your nostrils. So it's the thing that they are complaining, they're being given over to their own uh, craving. It actually, says that in in the story that the the people began to crave uh, this food, and so God says, "Okay, I will give you over uh, to this craving until it stuffs you to the point that you hate it, and it's coming out of your coming out of your nostrils." Now, all of these stories are stories in which God's anger and wrath are mentioned but none of them use the phrase give over um, it's we have to do the work of of reading carefully and trying to figure out what is going on here and I think when we when we take Paul's definition that's clearly stated in Romans 1 and read these stories I think that's exactly what we're seeing the Psalms use this all the time Um they talk about the wicked setting a trap or a net or digging a pit and then they fall into it or they're snared by their own trap or they uh, pull out a sword. I'm thinking, I think Psalm 37 uses this image of the the wicked uh, trying to slay um, uh, the innocent and slay the poor and the oppressed and then they fall on their own sword. And this is God's uh, judgment against them. And so God's judgment is not um, this active thing where he's throwing lightning bolts at people. It's you set a trap for these people and you fall into it. You, um, I'm giving you over to your own devices, to your own violence. Um, the whole book of Judges is essentially built on this premise uh, where the people, they begin to worship and follow after other gods. And then all of a sudden... Uh, they're given over to that nation, and that nation begins to rule over them and oppress them and put them in bondage, and they suffer, and then they begin to they cry out back to God, and He raises up a, a judge, and then he, they're delivered, and uh, the whole book of Judges is built on this cycle of of them uh, going after other gods, and then being given over to that nation to oppress them, and then God delivers them, and back and forth. So the whole book of Judges is really uh, built around this uh, this idea that they're continually being given over um, to these idols and to the people of these idols to suffer the consequences. So metaphor number one is being given over, that God gives people over to their own Uh, sinful desires, their own vile passions, and and so on that that Paul says. And we see, I think that story played out numerous times in the Old Testament, and I I gave a few. The next one is, um, first shows up in Deuteronomy 31, and it's this idea, this phrase that God uses, that he says that I will will hide my face um, from them. And so, let me pull it up here, and uh, I can just read it then. But he's going to he's going to hide his face. Oh, let's see. Okay, uh, verse seventeen. I'm actually gonna gonna read this one because everybody wants to listen to a podcast where somebody reads an obscure verse about God's wrath from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, when my anger will be aroused against them in that day. The Lord says, I will forsake them and I will hide my face from them and they will be devoured. Now, notice just in that single verse, all of the different metaphors that are used to talk about the same thing. Um, His anger is going to be aroused. He will forsake them. He will hide his face from them and they will be devoured. And then he continues, evil and trouble will befall them. Uh, and so it'll be in in that day. So all these things talk about the same thing. He continues in the next verse in, in verse 18, and I'll surely hide my face in that day because of the evil which they've done and because they've turned to uh, turn to other gods. So we get this this picture of God looking away and turning his face and then in in a bunch of uh, passages that use this phrase, Um, God also doesn't hear their prayer as he's looking, looking away, um, immediately after this verse, and this is why I think this one is important is immediately after this verse, um, God commands Moses He says, I'm going to give you a song and you're about to die. And so I'm going to give you a song that you can give to Joshua and then he can pass on to the future generation because what's going to happen, Moses, after you die, you know, these people are going to forsake me, and they're going to forsake the covenant. I mean, talk about a bummer news. You, He just spent 40 years with these people, uh, wandering around. He delivered them, and the news that he gets at the end of his life is, hey, just letting you know, they're going to break this covenant immediately uh, after you die. You're about to die. Go get uh, uh, Joshua and Make him the next leader. You're about to to leave. And immediately after you do, they're all going to rebel and they're going to forget this. So this is my last assignment for you. Write down this song so that that Joshua can teach it to everyone and everyone can know that I said this in advance and this will be a testimony against them. I mean, talk about a bummer. Like, what in the world? I I don't even know how depressed Moses had to be in that moment to just think, Man, I don't even get to go in, and now I'm being told that I'm a about to die, and b everybody's just gonna break this law and covenant that that I just spent all this time writing and all this stuff. Anyway, just terrible stuff. But in that song, it's called the Song of Moses. Deuteronomy thirty-two is the bulk of the song uh, of the song. It uses all kinds of violent imagery. Uh, of God wetting his sword. This is where, this is actually the line that Jonathan Edwards takes and preaches his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is probably the most famous sermon in American history. Um, And it's just filled with, if you want nightmares, you can go read that sermon. Um, But in the Song of Moses, you get God wetting his sword, getting ready to slay people, making his arrows drunk with blood, devouring them with all kinds of plagues and destruction and pestilence and all this. I mean, just like all the kinds of images that we typically associate with God's wrath. But we have to read all of those in the context of what he just told Moses. When he told Moses that these people are going to forsake me and I am going to I am going to get angry at them for it. What he said is, I'm going to hide my face from them. And hiding his face or just the act of turning away then gets spelled out in all of these these different things. And so of of violence and suffering and whatever. So I would propose this, and I, this is not new to me in in the the least bit, that God turning away and leaving Israel, leaving his people, and just turning his back on them is honestly similar to giving them over in the sense that he is just turning away, turning his eyes and his ears away from them and then letting them suffer the consequences of all of their sin and of living in a broken world. And that includes Suffering disease and pestilence and and violence and death and famine and all of these things. All of these things are not, you don't need God to throw lightning bolts of violence down. Humans are plenty good at killing each other. All he does is he turns away. He turns his face away from them. He turns his ear away from them. And this, so this gets spelled out even more in in ezekiel uh 39 wild chapter kind of confusing chapter it's a proclamation against this nation we don't really know a lot about named gog Uh, but this scene is important in the old testament because it's explicitly quoted and echoed in revelation 19 when jesus is pictured as coming back on a horse with tattoos on his thighs and just you know all buff and ripped and coming back with armies and you know gonna slay everybody and and in revelation 19 it says he kills everybody and there's blood up to everywhere and the birds of the air come and eat all the dead bodies from the field and whatever but this is that's an echo and really a direct quotation of of ezekiel 39 where god is going to punish uh this this nation uh gog and in ezekiel 39 he this is the phrase that he uses to describe all of that that he's simply he's simply going to turn away um, and immediately after this this proclamation in ezekiel you get chapters 40 through 47 which are ezekiel's visions about a new temple and a new earth which are then explicitly quoted in revelation 20 21 and Twenty-two, right? So, the, I mean, there's a, a a pattern here. There's like a, a a link here. But in in Ezekiel thirty-nine, um, multiple times he clearly states God clearly states that he is angry with this nation, and then also with Israel, and that he is um, hiding his face and bringing this destruction. And in the case of Israel. This means exile and giving over to enemies. Uh, So God hiding his face is synonymous here with him turning away from Israel and giving them over to their enemies and into exile. And this is exactly what happened in in the Babylonian captivity and also when Assyria came uh, from the north. But the last verse of that of that chapter in in Ezekiel thirty nine says that um, he promises he won't ever do this again when he pours out his spirit, which he we've we've had that part that, that part has happened. He has he has now poured out his spirit on all flesh, um, and uh, so we just that's an interesting. Some food for thought. Um, Isaiah fifty four also um, comes right after and is really a continuation of the song of the suffering servant. Isaiah fifty three, famous one that obviously is connected to Jesus's crucifixion, and in there you get you get synonyms of wrath, being forsaken, uh, God hiding His face. And all of this being like the waters of Noah. Here, let me let me go ahead and and just read it. In verse seven, he says, "For a mere moment I've forsaken you, but with great mercies I'll gather you." And with a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, for this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you anymore, but my kindness will not depart from you. And, and he continues and, and goes on. So we get a bunch of links here of being forsaken and wrath and hiding face and being like the days of noah so now i already mentioned that anger and wrath are not mentioned in the noah story but here they're they're connected isaiah connects them in at least in some way he connects the promise of not flooding the earth anymore with the promise that he is making now on the backside of the suffering servant to call his people his own and to show them mercy forever and to love them and to bring them all back to himself and all of these just incredible promises, giving them a new name and so on and so forth. But I think it does shed some light of how we can maybe think about the Noah story is that the Noah story and the flood of Noah is God hiding his face from all of creation and allowing creation to collapse back in on itself if you go back and read genesis 1 the very first act of of ordering in genesis 1 is it says that there was waters these chaotic waters over the face of the deep and that god separated those waters and then in, in Genesis 7, we get this explicit line where God, it says, opens up the heavens that he had, and he allows the water that he had separated to flood back in. And so he's, he's in a way turning his face from creation and creation falling back in on itself, and, and that is, is the flood. Um, but just like Ezekiel, Isaiah here um, says that God's mercy will be the thing that wins the day. Uh, that he won't hide his face forever. We also see this, um, this idea of hiding his face all over the Psalms um, of God. Why have you hidden your face from me? And that isn't just a, an act of, God, where are you? Uh, it's, it's synonymous, that's language of wrath and judgment. But the wrath there is experienced as, God, where are you? And that's the the whole point, is it isn't God sitting in heaven throwing lightning bolts or acting out in some active, violent way. It's him just hiding his face and then people saying, where are you? I'm suffering. I mean, if you read those Psalms and they say, God, why have you hidden your face? It's in the midst of them experiencing all of these things. And they go on in some of those psalms to to attribute some of those things to God. And it, what it, what to me what that says is they're wrestling with what is happening here. Where are you? I'm I'm experiencing all of this pain and trauma and suffering and violence and oppression, and you're supposed to be shining the light of your face. Remember, this is the great high priestly blessing that God would shine the light of His face, and your face is hidden meaning you have turned away and where are you and that is that is the wrath of god is him turning away and him just leaving us it's very similar to giving over him just leaving us to experience the 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 punishment of our own sin the wages of our own sin which is death and the death that is all around us okay one more uh this is the cup of wrath or the cup of fury sometimes it's it's called it's a favorite of Jeremiah and Ezekiel um Jeremiah 25 is really maybe the most graphic I mean it's one of the more graphic chapters probably in all of scripture but it it opens it's a very important chapter because the opening section of it is Jeremiah's prophecy that Israel uh, Judah is going to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years and um, this is I mean this is his One of his great prophecies that Babylon is coming and you will go into captivity um, with them for, for 70 years and be exiled from the land for 70 years for your disobedience and your unfaithfulness. The very next verse, God commands Jeremiah, he says, take the cup that is in my hand, the cup of my wrath and my fury, and give it to the nations that I send you. And then he lists like every nation under the sun and then just to drive home the point he literally says take it to every single nation uh so this is there's this universal sense here of what is of what what's happening but it's linked to to exile it's linked to it's linked to what he had just proclaimed to Israel and he he makes that clear in he says what happened to Israel take that cup and take it to to the nations um and so what is the cup well for Israel uh, it was it was death it was invasion and violence and exile in the hands of Babylon and then what he goes on to say is that that same thing is going to happen to Babylon just like Babylon came as the the cup in god's hand uh he is in fact um in in ezekiel uh at one point he actually calls uh, god god calls babylon babylon was the the cup in my hand i'm sorry i didn't write i'm looking at my notes and i just resident write that down but ezekiel at one point actually calls babylon the cup in god's hand And so just as Babylon was the cup in God's hand to bring an end to to Israel and suffering and violence and death, so is going to happen to Babylon. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. The Persians came and conquered Babylon just like Babylon came and conquered Judah. And such is the history of the whole world, which is why he says this to every nation, is... When you refuse to go, I, he doesn't say this here, but the Jesus way, when you refuse to follow follow God, this is where it's going to lead. Is uh, If your people and your nation are going to do their own thing uh, and go the way of the world, this is what is going to happen. You are going to, to drink the cup, right? And Jesus even tells um, uh, Israel this in his day. He's constantly warning them. Uh, please know the things that make for peace. If you continue to go this way, this is going to end in stone, no stone being left undone, stone being o- overturned and the whole city being burned. And that's exactly what happened in, in 70 AD. But even more, I think pertinent is, um, so, so what is the cup? The cup is the, is the cup of death. The, the cup is, is exile and, and death. It's being given over to death. And Jesus, who regularly, and I, I mentioned this in, our, in my last episode, Jesus, who regularly quotes Jeremiah to the point that people thought that he was Jeremiah, come back. I mean, when, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? They're, I think it's the very first answer is someone, some think that you are Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, right? So Jesus reminded people of Jeremiah. That's the point. Because he referenced Jeremiah so so much, and so Jesus picks up on this metaphor when he describes his own death in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in prayer, and he prays, and all three Synoptics record this. Uh, John doesn't, but all three Synoptics—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—do. He prays, "Father, let this cup pass from me." And what is the cup? The cup is the cup of death. He's he's about to go to the cross. He's about to die. And so Jesus on the cross is bearing the wrath of God in the sense that he is willingly giving himself over to the wages of our sin that has come upon the whole human race, violence and death. That the Father, in a sense, although, albeit willfully, with Jesus is... is being given over to the violence and death and drinking the cup, drinking the cup of death, drinking the cup of violence, drinking the cup of, of exile, not for himself, but for our sake. He's experiencing what we experience, and in assuming our experience in assuming the violence and death that we have done to ourselves and to our brother and to our neighbor and to our enemy and to everyone around us, uh, he completely transforms it. And so the cup of wrath becomes the cup of salvation. And now I'm thinking there's another cup that Jesus references often. And it's the, the cup of the Last Supper. So you have two cups in jesus's hand one is the cup that in the father that he wishes he didn't have to drink but he does and that's the cup of death but in drinking the cup of death the cup of death for us becomes the cup of life the cup of wrath if you want to put it that way becomes the cup of salvation so we drink now the cup at the at the lord's supper and communion the eucharist We drink the cup of his blood, and it's no longer the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of salvation. It's no longer the cup of violent bloodshed and death. It's the cup that brings us life through his bloodshed. It's the cup of sour wine that he drank on the cross now becomes the cup of the new wine of the new covenant uh, that we get to drink. And so Jesus... This, if we wanted to talk about the wrath of God in the cross, this is how I think we have to do it because he uses this image and this metaphor. He's not pulling cup out of the air. That The image of someone drinking the cup from God's hand is a well-established biblical image, and it's to talk about death. And he is about to drink the cup of death, and in drinking that cup, he... He experiences what we would call the wrath of God, being given over to death. The wages of sin are death. But he drinks the whole cup and exhausts the whole cup and transforms the cup into a cup of blessing and life and salvation rather than one of death. So now we, we, we get to drink that cup and it's no longer death for us, it's life for us. So that's that's how I would talk about the wrath of God. That the wrath of God is God more giving over, turning His face, and us, um, and ha- the nations drinking the cup of His wrath is them experiencing the wages of their own sin, which are death. I think, I think that is a, a better and more nuanced way. To talk about it now, I'll we'll end here. This doesn't answer every single question on the wrath of God. There are still a couple of stories that I just, I'm honest. If I'm honest, I just don't know what to do with. There are a few that I'm just like I, I don't, I don't know what to do with that, and that there's a few that I'm still really uncomfortable with. Um, but what I would say is. I I think if we look at at it if, when I look at it through this lens, when I try and connect these dots, when I start, this is why I talk I started talking about reading the Bible, reading in light of Jesus, reading from Jesus for Jesus, all of this stuff. If you haven't listened to those episodes, you can go back a few and listen to them why it's important to, to start there. Um, and and I think what I'm what I'm trying to say, here in these episodes, answers more questions. Thinking about God's wrath this way answers more questions and to me stays more faithful to Jesus than thinking about God being angry in heaven and zapping people with with acts of vengeance and violence because they did something that they weren't supposed to. Because when when I read the stories that way and then I get to Jesus, that's where the disconnect comes in. The reason I get the disconnect is because I read the Old Testament stories with a certain assumption of what the wrath and anger of God is and does, and then I get to Jesus, and it, I don't see that. But now here, in why I saved the cup one for last, is I there's a connection. There's a way for me to actually see the wrath of God being revealed in the gospel, Jesus taking it on himself in a way that... Still remains faithful to who God is because, in the end, just like Jeremiah told us, Isaiah told us, Ezekiel told us, that in the end, He does not hide His face forever. In the end, He turns back. In the end, He pours out His Spirit. In the end, He gives us the new wine. In the end, He gives us new life. In the end, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so it is, I think, for all of us in the wrath of God. So, Hope you enjoy that. Hope that's food for thought. If you have questions, if you have a story that you want to wrestle with, um, in the description below, there's always a link. You can leave me an email, send me an email, or leave me an audio message, and uh, we can do some of that. I do have a couple of listener questions to answer in a, a podcast uh, coming up soon. I'm going to do some Q&A, so if you have something from any of the last few episodes, uh, go ahead and shoot me an email or leave me an audio message. And uh, we can get to those here in a few episodes. So thank you so much for listening and have a great time. And we will see you next time.